Hey, this is Mike from Theology on Mission. This week, I stepped out of the conversation to make room for two of Northern's professors, Dr. Greg Boyd and Dr. Claude Marantini. They're on the show talking about divine violence and the warrior God. If you enjoy conversations like this, if you're looking for theological education, ministry training, check us out at seminary.edu. And especially look at Greg's program in Anabaptist Studies. Here's the show, hosted by none other than Fitch. Enjoy. All right, everybody, it's uh, Dave Fitch here, Theology on Mission podcast. I don't know what Mike Moore's doing today. He's sitting over here. He's doing his thing. He's got like, I don't know, he's got a keyboard. He's got different uh, earbuds in him. And he's looking really sharp, though. The, the shirt's really going. But we have a number of guests on the show today. It's the Theology on Mission podcast, where theology meets mission, the questions of engaging our culture for Christ and his kingdom. So welcome. And here's the big surprise today, as Mike Moore lowers the music, because so I can actually hear myself. Yes. Oh, he shut it off completely. Well, okay. Anyways, ladies and gentlemen, welcome again to the basement of the Northern Seminary buildings, where I'm talking to you from the Griffith Sound Studio. And we have as our special guest, uh, Dr. Greg Boyd, all the way from Minneapolis, and Dr. Claude Maritini. Distinguished Emeritus Professor of Old Testament at Northern Seminary for as many years as I can remember. And by the way, he and I shared a wall together, a wall. He and I uh, shared next door offices. And uh, I don't remember us getting into any big arguments back there, Claude, but uh, we might get into an argument today. It could happen. I hope not. <laughs> are, 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 you, are you worried, Claude, that we might get into an argument? Oh, no, I'm not worried. I know, uh, I know who you are, and I know where I stand. Well, and we always know that uh, reconciliation is possible in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. And, and Amen. That, that other voice is Dr. Greg Boyd, and he is a rather famous gentleman for writing yeah. crucifixion. Oh, Greg, quit being so <laughs> modest. I mean, we do love modesty at the podcast, but not false modesty. Oh, stop it. Keep going. <laughs> Crucifixion of the warrior God, uh, interpreting the Old Testament's violent portraits of God in light of the cross. And so this brings us to our discussion for the day. This actually happened on uh, my Facebook page. This was about, I think it was a half a year ago, maybe. Uh, Mike Moore shaking his head. I don't quite remember, but it really doesn't matter. And uh, we're going to start off by uh, the episode that appears in Joshua chapter 5. And I said in my Facebook post, in the story of the angel appears before Jericho, Greg Boyd takes note that after the Israelites have fought numerous battles, they celebrate their first meal as inhabitants of Canaan. Joshua looks up and sees a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua, surprised and threatened, asks, Are you for us or our enemies? 
And this man, who later identifies himself as the commander of the Lord's army, army replies, neither. That's Joshua 5, 13. And so, stunningly, before the battle of Jericho, after many violent battles won, God reveals through this angel, he reveals himself as one who does not make enemies, does not take sides. Indeed, he's not the violent God ordering the genocides. And so, by the way, this is kind of like the point I want to get to, you two gentlemen. This is just one of many clues that the violence attributed to God in the conquest narratives of the Old Testament is not indeed of God, but attributed to God via an accommodation to ancient Near East cultural assumptions allowed as part of the way God enters the world. Or I should say, in the words of Greg Boyd, stoops down into it to work his plans in the world. So here we have a theological interpretation of the Old Testament. Uh, and uh, first of all, to uh, Dr. Greg Boyd, did I uh, summarize your take on that text and basically some of your strategy and in interpret the Old Testament accurately? If not, does it need some correction or massaging? Well, I, you know, the only thing I'd add, I mean, you did an excellent job, David, of summarizing my, my conclusion. But uh, you know, the, 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 what drives the whole thing yeah. uh, is, is an understanding of the cross as the definitive revelation of God. And it's all scripture pointing to Jesus Christ and especially to his suffering on the cross, Luke 24. And, um, and so that's the driver of this. I'm not trying, it, this isn't a, it's simply an alternative exegetical exercise. It's a theological understanding of the Old Testament, as you said. And so without that background, if you just have the kind of the conclusions I arrive at without looking at how I got there via the cross, uh, it, it won't be very enlightening. Okay. So uh, you're, you're one corrective, and I stand, I stand corrected, uh, is that none of this makes any sense unless we understand the overarching theological hermeneutic, which is driving yes. the way you're looking for the text. Now, Claude, I think that you and I got into a little argument on Facebook, uh, and you objected to a few things. Do you have, uh, how would you respond to uh, Dr. Boyd's take? I'm not going to call you Dr. Boyd anymore. I don't know why I'm calling you. can call you me Dr. Greg. I'll call you Greg. Just don't uh, call me schmuck. <laughs> but Claude, you had some objections to that take on that particular text. And I just want to open the conversation here for our audience to truly understand the dynamics, because I see you as a, a good person to clarify where there are differences between uh, Greg's view of the text and some more traditional Old Testament exegetes like yourself. I don't know if Greg is aware, but uh, I wrote uh, two posts dealing with the commander of the army, and I have written already 10 posts dealing with Exodus 34. Yeah. Uh, he deals uh, with that uh, in part in his book, but uh, uh, I believe that uh, his characterization of the God of the Old Testament is not uh, completely biblical. Uh, I believe that uh, the, in his book, he says that the angel uh, of the command of the Lord is uh, neutral, but the neither of the NIV translation is not correct because the Hebrew uh, has a, a, the preposition law, which means not. Uh, he is not uh, saying that he is neither 
uh, neutral against uh, the Canaanites or the Israelites. Uh, in my post, I try to say that uh, the, uh, the commander of the army is saying that uh, he is uh, in favor of Israel, but not against uh, uh, them, not in favor of the, the Canaanites. Uh, I think uh, the neither of the, the NIV is incorrect. All right. All right. So all I can say at this point is, uh, 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 Claude, do you know that Hebrew was the only uh, class I took in my entire academic career that I got a C in? <laughs> I believe that. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Uh, not about Ivrit. <laughs> yeah. Ivrit Tov. Not, uh, yeah. So anyways, do you have a response? <laughs> Uh, Greg, do you have a response to that? Because I certainly have nothing to stand on in terms of, of Claude's command of the Hebrew. I would never go against – I had four years of Hebrew, and what unfortunately – What grade did you get? Not twice of that. I will tell you that, that Hebrew, I think, was one of the toughest challenges for me. And unfortunately, it was the first language I took, so it was, it was really hard. So I, I – but, okay, I, I, I am just – I checked a number of translations and uh, cause I, I, you know, I had four years, but I haven't used it. And if you don't use it, you lose it. And I got to depend on lexicon. So I defer to the experts on this, but I don't recall ever finding a translation that like, uh, what are some other translations, Claude, uh, of, of that word that's translated as neutral. You think it, it, wrongly by the NIV. Yeah. I say I give, uh, I hope you have an opportunity to read my article. But there are I, 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 I only read, they sent me a link to the, the introduction to the series that you're doing. And then I only this morning discovered that you had, I only thought there was one post there. And then I discovered that you have 10. And yeah. so I, I, I quickly read through, uh, I got through six of them, but I haven't right. seen the other stuff. All right. Okay. I, I, I would recommend that you read the, the one on the commander of the Lord's army. Okay. Okay. But because we don't have, let me go ahead. It. Because most people tend to separate uh, chapter 5, verses 12 to 14, from chapter 6. I believe that chapter 6, 1 to 4, is continuation of chapter 5, verse 12 to 14. And that okay. makes a difference in interpreting at the commander's word. All right, all right, you guys. Now, now look, can you calm it down a little bit over there? Okay, now. Uh, <laughs> all right, so uh, I want to say, uh, I read, by the way, Claude is now published. He's the only man I know who's published more pages on crucifixion of the warrior God than are actually the crucifixion of the warrior God. That's <laughs> 1,450 that. pages later. Thank you very much. <laughs> but anyways, uh, okay, I want to read this footnote. And I want to ask both of you a question because, uh, you know, I read carefully uh, Greg's manuscript twice. And wow. uh, this is part of what I loved about it. And by the way, you know, Greg, that I endorse the manuscript. And yeah, we'll I appreciate it that. Again. Um, but, you know, uh, it says in footnote 22, page uh, 924, uh, to be sure, we find numerous depictions of Yahweh promising and giving Joshua military victories. And then you give a list of references. But the practice of devoting everyone to destruction is always done either on the authority of Moses or on Joshua's own initiative. 
then you give some references. Indeed, one curious episode, Joshua engaged in Haram, even though Yahweh had told them merely to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. And then you go, so anyways, I find this line of thinking, argument, that indeed where we see God uh, often accused of genocide or haram, is that the way to pronounce it, uh, Claude? Yeah. Uh, that More like in, harim. 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 The, 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 the genocidal texts are really, there's clues there that it was really the Moses or doing it, Joshua, in the name of God doing that. Is that uh, have I characterized... Uh, a summary of what you see, a pattern in Old Testament interpretation, Greg. Uh, and then, Claude, do, do, you, do you have a response to that? Okay, so I, I the working, my, my, my hermeneutic is that if Christ is the definitive revelation of God, we take all our clues about our, what we think about God from, from, from him. And so whatever is consistent with that throughout the Old Testament, and much of it is, um, uh, that, 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 that I can affirm as a direct revelation. And whatever is not consistent with that, um, that I think that, that that reflects God bearing the sin of His people, just as He does on the cross. So He takes on an appearance that's ugly, because He's bearing the He's reflecting the ugliness of the sin that He carries, just as God does on the cross. So I, I see the cross as being indicative. It's not it's not an exception to what God always does. It's the chief exemplification of what God always does. God's always doing this, and so God's always been stooping into people's sin and taking on that ugliness. And um, and then you have all these passages that show that the way people experience God reflects their heart, the condition of their heart. Uh, to the to the to the, those who are upright, God appears upright and straight. But to those who are twisted, God appears twisted. And you have verses like that. So so when I come to um, a passage that that ascribes genocide to God, um, I can't reconcile that with what I learn about God in Jesus Christ. And so that I will assume is the it reflects the sin that God is bearing. And and then what I found in Crucifixion of the Warrior God, and this is why the book got so long, is that. When I approach it with that cross perspective, there I do find clues in the text itself that suggest to me that this was not, in fact, uh, the Lord's doing. Um, and, and there's a number of indications in the conquest narratives, I think, that confirm that. The inconsistencies of the command, the way they're carried out, um, and, and a number of things like that. It, it shows that uh, I, I think we're seeing here, I think God said, go into the land, I give you this inheritance. But in Moses' ancient Near Eastern mind, what he hears is, you got to go kill them all because no one in the ancient Near East has a conception of God giving it to them without, without their help, uh, without their, and you know, you have this, 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 this promise after, with the Exodus became kind of the paradigm for how God wants to deal with his people. And he emphasized there, if you'll trust me, you won't have to fight. I'll make your, I'll, I'll make your enemies flee before you. Uh, in fact, he, he offers a couple of alternative plans on getting into Canaan in a nonviolent way. I'll use hornets, pestilence. Um, but apparently those plans, you know, went in one ear and out the other, and um, uh, which often happens. And, you know, you, disciples, Jesus tells them for three years, I, I've got to go get you know, crucified. And when he does, they're shocked. Um, it's because their conception, they, they could not hear it. Like Jesus is always saying, why can't you hear the words I'm saying? Well, All right. Our condition, how we hear it. All right. And I, and I, and I thoroughly uh, learned from you uh, this kind of hermeneutic development. But Claude has some problems with it. Go ahead, Claude. Wait, wait, wait. The, the your section on the hornets, uh, I have a upcoming post dealing with that because uh, the translation should not be hornet but uh, something else, either fear or playing. Uh, we have evidence that God says in one place, 
that he conquered the Sihon and Og through the hornets, when in reality, uh, the book of Joshua says that they use uh, the sword in order to conquer the enemy. Now, I, I truly believe, I still have uh, 10 polls on my series upcoming. Uh, wait, and wait, one, Claude, you got 10 more on 10, top of? 10 more what I have written. I'm, I'm trying to finish a book by March dealing oh with your book. And uh, I, I, truly believe, I truly believe that the cross is the key point in understanding uh, the, the violence of God in the Old Testament. Oh. But, see, but I think the key to understanding uh, violence is the death of the warrior God on the cross. Because in a sense, God was saying, I'll fight no more forever like a, a Chief Joseph. And I, I think um, where I believe you make the mistake is that you take uh, your Anabaptist pacifist view and interpret everything in the Old Testament. You want to interpret uh, the Claude, Old Testament. Claude, what's wrong with that? No, you want to interpret <laughs> the, 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 the Old Testament from the perspective of the Sermon on the Mount. And we have to understand that everybody before Christ were BC people. They have a different... Uh, culture, a different theology, a different understanding that, that we do not have today. I think it is wrong to interpret the Old Testament from a 21st century perspective. But how about from a, from a, a cross perspective, from a, from a Jesus perspective? Uh, say, one, one of the sections of your book deal uh, that uh, sometimes God's plan fail, right? Right. I believe that, and I believe that what we have in the Old Testament is the failure of Israel, and the failure of Israel ends at the cross when the warrior God dies on the cross, and then from there on, something new begins. God has a, a, what we could call plan B. Plan B is Christianity. Oh, so what, what we find is that plan A fails. So, so, Claude, then, I mean, in some respects, I think we're closer than I thought we were. Uh, and you, you <laughs> That's right. Centrally the cross. But then, do you, I'm wondering, like, so the New Testament authors, clearly, when they read the Old Testament, it seems to me that they were reading it through the lens of Christ. I mean, you wouldn't have, you know, Rachel weeping for her children. Uh, you know, they use these passages that if you look at the original context, the original context really wasn't about what they're saying it is. But they're seeing something new from the from the perspective of their uh, of, of Christ. They, they, they're reading the Bible; they find Christ everywhere. Would you agree with that? Well, sir, I believe that uh, Plan A, which was God's work through Israel, did not accomplish the redemption of the world. So, because Israel failed, God decided to begin something completely different in Christ. Wow! So, so what we have to do? We have to look at the Old Testament from the perspective of the Old Testament and then see that uh, from now on, God is dealing completely different with the world and with his own people. See, I, I would agree with you on that, but, but I, I'm wondering, <laughs> Claude, you sound like more of an open theist than I am. <laughs> I am. <laughs> all right, all right. Hey, so, guys. Really think, so, so did God genuinely think, like, could there have been, if Israel would have worked with the, would the incarnation and cross have been unnecessary? 
Now, well, that, that's the, the problem because, uh, see, God had a, a, a plan to, to redeem the world. And because Israel failed, God took a, another, another way, another path. And so I called the, uh, Christianity Plan B because uh, the good intentions of God failed uh, in the Old Testament with Israel. So, so right. then, then it, it, the, the salvation of the world could have been accomplished without the incarnation and the cross if Israel hadn't failed? Well, you see, the, the question is, because Israel failed, it, God has to take human form and come, in, and, and come into the world, teaching right. us the, the best way to accomplish his work. All, all, all right, all right, both of you guys, let me interject. Okay, first of all, I just want to disavow supersessionism uh, as far as Northern, no, no, wait, as far as Northern Seminary goes. I uh, agree with that. I, I'm not on that <laughs> band. Okay. <laughs> By the way, if we get out of this podcast alive, I will consider it a major accomplishment. Let's move to another text. Because we're not going to solve this one, I think, right now. And and uh, well, but, but that issue is we were that is a crucial issue there. It is. That's right. We're hitting at the linchpin here, and also we have a different understanding of like I, I a crucial issue is, and I make the case in Crucifixion Where God as good as I can make it that nonviolence is central to Jesus' revelation of God, and then to Jesus' kingdom ethic. And, and that'd be a different, different debate, but that's really where the difference lies. Yeah, that's right. But we also have to remember that uh, the God who died on the cross, the warrior God, is Jesus Christ. So I, I, I believe that Jesus, like you said in your book, is Yahweh in human form. I, I, I we're, we agree on that. But, we're, but see, when I say crucifixion of the warrior God, I'm saying Jesus died for all the sin of the world and i think one of the major sins of the world is that we've seen god as a warrior and that's why whereas you think god actually did that violence and then crucified that plan apparently but but, but by denying that god is the warrior god you are denying most of the old testament all right folks let's uh claude let me just with this point right here i want to dig into uh and we'll start it the character of god which I think you're getting into, as revealed in the Old Testament. Uh, let's use Exodus 34, 6 and 7, and your differences there. So, uh, the, uh, Exodus 34, uh, the Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So here we have um, a somewhat conflictual view of God. God is a faithful, kind, uh, patient, uh, and yet a visiting intergenerational sin uh, generation upon generation. Uh, Claude, you had a problem with, with the way Greg treated that text. Well, and, it, and what was it? I have already done 10 posts on that issue. <laughs> the problem is, is that uh, he uh, eliminates the last part of verse 7 because he said that the Jews do not believe uh, in that that was added. But uh, when we come to the book of Nahum in the sixth, seventh century, they still refer to that section of the, the passage. 
And then Jeremiah, which in my next post, also deals with God visiting the, the, the punishing the, the, the family. So, said, so, Claude, you're saying that uh, Greg uh, limits the uh, visiting iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He that's right, because he said that that was added later. And I think I showed throughout mm -hmm. my posts that that is part of God's character. So can you ex kind of explicate what exactly is part of God's character? He is a God of vengeance. He, no, he, no, 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 no. God is always a God of grace and mercy. But God's what about the third God. and fourth generation? What are you trying to include there that is eliminated? Because, because people, by rebelling and denying God, provoke him to, to wrath. See, wrath is not part of God's nature. God is provoked to wrath. So violence begets violence. So God deals with the people because they break his law, they sin against him. So God has to bring justice uh, upon uh, the people who rebel and sin against him. Okay, and so you're saying the third and fourth generation is the proper justice of God. No, no. Well, you see, look, you have to read my post because that doesn't apply, doesn't, is not used constantly. You see, when people re repent, God does not judge. When, uh, in, in the case of the 12 spies, uh, the, the generation died of natural death. You see, you have to read the post to see the, All right. the argument. All right, Greg, do you have a response to anything you've heard? Because I, uh, well, I, 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 I didn't argue that that, that last clause was added um, uh, in the original. What I argued was, and there's a lot of scholars who argue, agree with this, that, that uh, it, it was rather dropped off. Uh, that, it, that final clause, so that, that phrase is repeated, but um, the final clause is dropped off. And, and then you have Ezekiel 18, and you disagree with my reading of that, but I couldn't see what... what what the disagreement was over what that, is that there he says everyone will pay for their own sins i will not have the children pay for the parents sin or the parents for the child's sin and and uh, that seems like a new development in the thought of israel okay well, uh, my next one is on jeremiah and then uh, ezekiel well ezekiel uh, in chapter 18 affirms that the people uh, in exile are there because they are paying for the sins of the parents now it's say. Uh, uh, I, I truly believe that uh, uh, the idea of uh, uh, the children paying for the sins of the parents continues. Uh, even in, in the New Testament, when the, the man was born blind, the Jewish asked, who sinned that he was born blind? Because they believed still in that time. See, so in the seventh century, in the sixth century, the, the idea of the generational punishment is still present in, in the, the life of Israel. Hmm. It's interesting, John 9, though, that uh, it, you're right. The disciples asked that question. It seems to me Jesus' response is to show them that they're wrongheaded. In fact, in the original Greek, in a lot of translations, it says uh, Jesus responds by saying, uh, you know, they say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither. But, but uh, he, this happened so that the works of God might be glorified, and then he heals the guy. But the phrase, this happened, that, is inserted um, because they interpret that clause. They think Jesus is actually answering the question. In the Greek, it just has hina with a subjunctive, 
And, and, and there's no, this happened, that, it, it, the only response you have is neither, but let the works of God be glorified. Yeah. And so I think he's saying, wrong question, let's heal the guy. And, and so I, he invalidates that perspective. But he, the thing is, is that it doesn't, like if I was completely wrong on, on the generational sin, at one point you said uh, in, in one of your posts, I think part six, that, that the promise to visit the sins on the third and fourth generation is actually a statement about God's mercy. Now, if, that, if you're right about that, I will celebrate that. I have no trouble. Um, this is just like one little kink, one little piece of the whole, you know, Christian hermeneutic. And whatever is consistent with God's character, whatever's gracious, whatever, whatever, I completely affirm. It's just what is, I think, sub-Christ-like. Uh, that material, the genocidal and violent stuff, that's the stuff that I, I think we have to look deeper. Um, and, and, and go back to the early church which saw these, these portraits of God as being unworthy of God and therefore had to find a deeper meaning in them. Yes, they are divinely inspired, but the inspired meaning of them is beneath the surface, not on the surface. All right, all right. Uh, can I uh, rein it in here a little bit? Uh, I, I would like both of you to respond to this question, which is kind of brought up by the Exodus text. Uh, is when you say God punishes sin or injustice, um, some of us would say sin is its own punishment. The consequences of sin are its own punishment. And the grace presence of God to heal and interrupt those consequences is his work. Withdrawing his presence, like I think Dr. Boyd taught me, withdrawing his presence is really about the unleashing of the wrath of God. Uh, this changes the nature and the way we see the character of God. Uh, Claude, you have two minutes to respond to that. And Greg, you have two minutes to respond to that. And then we got to wrap this baby up. First of all, the word for punishment does not appear in Hebrew. And the right. word pakad means to visit. So what God does, God brings the consequences of the people's sin upon themselves. Oh, they, you see, they, they bring the consequences. So God sometimes uh, bring the, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Arameans, in order to bring uh, the, the consequences of the sin upon the people. Now, uh, I know that uh, sometimes we think that uh, God is the one acting uh, violently, but sometimes God uses agents that bring the violence upon the people. You see, the word for punishment does not appear in the Hebrew Bible. Okay, Claude, uh, I thought I, I just heard Greg Boyd speak with a Brazilian accent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <Claude>. Brian. <laughs> no, Claude, I, 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 the view you just articulated is the view that I articulate in the book, though in Christmas and the Warrior God, I base it on the cross. Because on the cross, for Jesus to come under the judgment of God and suffer the death consequences of our sin, the only thing the father had to do is to turn him over to wicked men operating under principalities and powers to do what was already in their heart to do. And I think that's how God always judges sin. Um, Romans 1, you know, he turns them over to their, to their sin. To, you know, basically, God says, if that's the way you want to go, I'm going to let you go. It, but the end is going to be destruction. So then the question, Claude, would be this. In a world where it's full of violent people, it's oppressed by violent principalities and powers, um, and you grant that violence only begets violence, my question to you would be, why would God ever need to act violently to bring judgment on sin? Why not just say God always just lets people go 
And there's other agents that, that then, then come in and they do what they want to do. And people suffer the just consequences of their sin. Why would God need to be act, act violent, especially if it perpetrates more violence? Because uh, sometimes uh, uh, justice has to be accomplished uh, recently fast. If we allow, for instance, the violence during the flood to last for three or four hundred years, see, then there will be no justice for those who uh, were living at that time. Or say, in the case of the Canaanites, God waited 400 years before he brought judgment upon them. So see, God is patient. Like the Bible says, he's slow to anger. God gave the Israel 400, Judah 400 years before he took them to exile. So say, uh, eventually, uh, God has to bring judgment, his justice upon the people. Uh, I have uh, one post coming on uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, another one on the flood, another one on Elijah uh, and, and his detractors. But all right, see, all right. Uh, we got to bring it in now. Uh, I got one more question for both of you because I sometimes think this maybe is the crux of the issue. Uh, I am ordained in the Christian Missionary Alliance and I still serve as a pastor. And uh, we had this guy, the founder of our denomination, his name was A.B. Simpson. Mm -hmm. And he wrote 12, book, 12 volumes on Jesus in the Old Testament. He saw Jesus everywhere in the Old Testament. I sometimes think Old Testament biblical studies scholars and those who want to uh, uh, uphold the integrity of the Jewish uh, books of the Bible uh, want, are, are somewhat uh, angry at A.B. Simpson and people who do, who see Jesus in the Old Testament uh, and people like Greg Boyd. Uh, is that part of your problem, uh, Claude, with uh, you, you Old Testament scholar, you, you who hold the Hebrew language over against us all the time? Is that, I'm just kidding now. I'm joking, Claude. But anyways, is that maybe your problem here? No, no. It's a look. I agree with Boyd. The warrior God died on the cross. You see, the whole Old Testament is about Christ because he is Yahweh. So why, why can't you see uh, Jesus in the Old Testament if Jesus is Yahweh? All right, all right. With that, folks, one of the most profound agreements all of us have on this podcast. Can we have a can we hear a round of applause out there in Theology on Mission podcast? We do not kill each other. <laughs> all right, so very quickly, your blog, uh, Claude, is, is what? ClaudeMariotini.com, one word. ClaudeMariotini.com, yes. one word. And there's now 1,552 pages of material on uh, Greg Boyd's interpretation of well, the Old Testament. Hopefully, uh, I'll have my book, Greg, by March, and in which I'm going to address some of the issues you raised in your book. And, and I, I, I hope you include at some point. I, I just read through the post there, and I just uh, I'm honored that you would write a whole book against my book. So I, I'm flattered. <laughs> so thanks. Right. Um, but uh, they have something there about my methodology and the hermeneutic, and maybe you do. You're planning on having that, but in in the post so far, you, you give my conclusions, but not how I got there, and so it feels kind of truncated. Well, it, it would help if you just include something about the, the that, form hermeneutic. That's well, chapter ten when I deal with the New Testament. <laughs> oh, yeah, All right. All right, folks. And then, Greg, you have a blog, right? I right. do. It's, what is 
Well, I, I, we have a podcast, and I sometimes blog, but I haven't. I'm going to get back to it. I haven't been blogging very much, but we have a uh, yeah, renew.org, and that's with a K, R-E-K-N-E-W. Renew everything you thought you knew. Renew.org, and your upcoming book, by the way, which I also have endorsed, is uh, what? What's the name of it? It's called uh, Inspired Imperfection. Uh, uh, how the problems of the Bible uh, uh, enhance its divine authority. Okay, great. Uh, by the way, very apropos in light of this podcast. And that comes out when? Uh, that's January 7th. It will be released. You can pre-order it now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's a, a lot of stuff. Uh, and if you are at all interested in anything you've heard in the last half hour, you have plenty of places to go and learn some more. Well, folks, uh, we ask you, if you like our Theology on Mission podcast, to give us a review on iTunes or any other place you can find it. Uh, we uh, invite you to come back uh, next week. I don't know who our guest will be, but it's been really good. I don't have Mike Moore with me on this podcast now. He, he's sitting over here, but he's not uh, mic'd in. So I'm just going to have to say over and out, Dave Fitch and Mike Moore, uh, Theology on Mission podcast. Until next time.